This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Helen Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Good evening to you both. Hello to you both. Don't, don't. don't <laughs> oh, it got weird already. Like it's me. like five past seven and it's <laughs> I already I have a two-year-old. Odd. I don't need you two doing that as well. Cerise, it's good to have you back after a semi-prolonged absence. It's good to be back after a <laughs> semi-prolonged absence. <laughs> what a... A big thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of, I'm hoping, innuendo-free uh, music on maps. Um, great hearing the Pixies as I arrived into the station this evening. Phoebe will be back next week at 4pm to do it all again. But um, on our show tonight, we're going to take a look at Life Animated. This is an American documentary about an autistic man who, as a child, used Disney films as his window to the world. We'll also be continuing our look back at some of the Stanley Kubrick films that will be screening soon at Cinema Nova. We're going to be discussing his 1975 Thackeray adaptation, Barry Lyndon. But first, I Am Not a Serial Killer is the new film by Irish filmmaker Billy O'Brien, whose main credit up until now seems to be uh, a 1999 short he made, which won a BAFTA. The short is titled The Tale of the Rat That Wrote. Now, despite its American Midwest setting and being adapted from a novel by an American novelist, by the American novelist Dan Wells, I Am Not a Serial Killer is an Ireland and UK co-production. It's about a teenage boy who, having been diagnosed as a sociopath, is concerned that it is inevitable he will become a serial killer. His obsession with this supposed fate leads him to begin investigating a series of murders in the town he lives in. Now, actor Max Records, best known as the boy from Where the Wild Things Are, stars as John Wayne Cleaver, the rather unfortunately named teenage sociopath protagonist. The other notable cast member in this film is Christopher Lloyd. What did we all make of I Am Not a Serial Killer? Have you guys read the books? No. Interestingly, the books, depending on where they're marketed, they're marketed at different audiences. Like in some territories, they're regarded as adult genre fiction. Other territories, they're marketed as YA books. I'm really fascinated by this because I saw it it turned up on my search as as young adult and, um, you know, people talking about the books in relation to things like The Hunger Games and stuff like that. And usually, I think you can tend to spot a YA film. This isn't a YA film at all. Like this is, um, I was quite surprised that it had that that kind of heritage because this just felt like a straightforward horror film to me. It didn't feel that it was pitched. It certainly didn't feel like a, a, a young adult film by any stretch. It doesn't. I mean, I wonder if the the subject matter in in a in literature is more palatable for a, a, a YA audience mm-hmm. because the, this film I don't think at all would be a suitable film to, to pitch towards teenagers. I'm yep. sure teenagers would possibly enjoy it, but you're right, it doesn't feel at all like a Harry Potter or a Hunger Games yeah. type film, In terms does of it? that quote-unquote YA branding, yeah. it's not a quote-unquote YA film. Not at all. Um, well, it's not going to be franchised either. No. I don't I think. Don't I could be wrong. And so. they certainly haven't promoted the film as a YA no, film, no, just I despite d- its origins. Yep, yeah. I absolutely didn't pick that up either. This is, um, I think, virtually every piece of uh, kind of critical writing I've seen on this film. There's just like It's like a list of things that it's like. It's that really, it's like X meets Y. And the big common ones, I think, were... Um, 
uh, Fargo meets Dexter meets Romero's Martin. They were the three names that came up a lot. I've also um, heard, I think in one of the promotions we've been playing on this station, they mm-hmm. also compare it to Donnie Darko, which seemed a little off, Yeah, I, wouldn't. I think. I think that there's a whole, I mean, there's a whole bunch of films that, that, that I thought that really came into play in this. There was, uh, did you ever see Kiss, the Lynn Stopkiewicz film from 1996? The Necrophile. The Necrophile, yeah. the young woman who discovers that, that she has tendencies and she gets a job in a... Tendencies. She has tendencies. Uh, she has an affection, an affinity mm, towards... The, the cold. <laughs> Just explaining what necrophilia is mm. for those of you. <laughs> Euphemistically. What is, yeah, what's going on here? Um, mm. Yeah, but that, that idea of her kind of that being close to the source of fascination, I think, that is mim- mimicked by the protagonist in this film working in a... Um, a funerary a, Yeah, in a, service, in a kind of morgue um, context yeah. or a funeral home context. It's an interesting um, family business to be raised into both as a, 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 what is it, a young teen but also seemingly learning the tricks of the trade. Uh, when you know that the kid's a sociopath, I found this actually the most interesting part of the whole film, that he's diagnosed. He, um, he has a therapist who talks him through the sort of behaviours that are expected of him in order for him to be a an effective and um, trouble-free member of society. You know, he fits the profile, we're told. And I find that really intriguing in as much as I think his mother, from whom he's learning the tricks of the trade... Um, would probably have to fit the profile largely too, just in order to ply that trade, in order to be the sort of person who routinely cuts people up and Mm -hmm. sucks out one lot of goo and inserts a different sort and then sends them off all prettied up to uh, whatever sort of service awaits them. I think um, that really interests me much more about the mystery that is at the heart of this film, just this whole business of sociopathy and how it can be productive in society so long as people are given guidance the right outlets that yeah. there's a correct way to to deal with this sort of morbid fascination as yes. opposed to an incorrect way to deal yeah. with this morbid fascination i also i mean when i was watching this i was thinking a lot of um and i was one of them just that sort of teen obsession with serial killers you yeah know? i mean i think that if not ourselves we all know somebody who went through that phase of just you know like that you watch every single serial killer doco and it um i think that you know i mean it, i think that there's almost a cath- fascination. I don't think it's, yeah. it's automatically macabre. No. I, I think that... But this film conflates it too with a very common teenage boy interest in um, oh, for want of a, a better umbrella term, but the Dungeons and Dragons world of things, of monsters and folkloric, mythical, horrible mm-hmm. things that... All um, the stuff Led Zeppelin sang about. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. the <laughs> pixies and fairies yep. and goblins and such. I find that all, all quite, you know, heavy metal. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah. classic iconography of metal, whether it's actually real horrors or fantasy horrors, and just that this film treads interesting ground where it's, inevitably you have to start to wonder, and I don't want to get into any sort of spoiler territory, but whether the horrors in this film as a body count mounts up, um, where you know, this film's a who's doing it rather mm-hmm. than a who done it, almost giallo style in a way. Yep, yep. Um, you have to start to wonder if there isn't something beyond the um, earthly. Yep. Uh, what is going on in this yep. town? It's a small town. This sort of thing doesn't happen here, we are advised at some point. In fact, that's supposed to be one of the triggers for the sociopathic behaviour of this kid who says he's not a serial killer, but this came to his town. It was not supposed to come to his town. This thing, this whatever it is, that's killing people off. Him being a sociopath is easily what's most interesting about this film for, for me is... 
as well. And as we've said, a lot of his behaviour seems to me like typical gloomy, dark and disturbed as a fashion accessory teen boy behaviour. And I can say this very knowingly because I was <laughs> that kind of adorably toolish teenage boy who was interested in, in you know, macabre death stuff. But it was... Girls too. We... we, we, we yeah, but I, I was a teenage boy, <laughs> so I'm just talking about me. Uh, I, I never met the girls who were into that stuff. I, 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 we were all locked in our bedroom writing poetry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was walking around in oversized overcoats just looking disturbed, man. Um, so I, I kind of actually liked this character and I thought it was a good portrayal of that kind of character. It wasn't too indulgent, but there, there wasn't a lot... Despite being told he's a sociopath and we're told he has a problem being cruel to animals and we're told other things, we don't see a lot of evidence of this kind of behaviour which sounded really, really interesting. There are moments, there's a, there's a moment where he confronts his best friend that is quite uh, emotionally devastating to the best friend. There's a great moment where he stands up to a, a school bully which is, is really, really effective. Um, and, you know, for the first sort of 20 minutes or so of this film, I thought it was going to be a really fascinating look at how this character coped with these killings and sort of debating, you know, whether it was the question that it may actually be him doing it himself. And I found it revealed what was going on in the film incredibly early and it squandered such a good premise. I got thoroughly bored with this film. And even though I know there are some twists and turns, well, there's not. It actually, it, it signposts very early that there is something more to meets the eye going on. It, it, it really reveals everything in about at about the 20 or 25 minute point. And from that point on, and this, it's been a while since I've watched a film to the end, where I've been conscious of the fact that my mind was completely elsewhere. I just drifted. I, I found this kind of dull I squandered yeah I was kind of the same and it was frustrating I guess because um Max Records was really great I mean he really owned that character I think he was a really quite an extraordinary performance and I also really liked the character of the counselor I love the dynamic between I've never maybe maybe I need to see more film who knows but I can't recall a film where I've seen a counselor patient dynamic that's that like that it was just so informal it took me a, a while to realize sort of hints at the, what the relationship was because yeah. you know i think that he says at one point that you know there's an illusion that 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 counselor's dating the mother and yeah and there's an absent father so yeah, there's, there's clearly a, a little substitution going on there. absolutely yeah. and just a really great performance from the guy that played the counselor as well yeah. so i mean all of this stuff was rich enough and i think the relationship with the christopher lloyd character was rich enough yeah um it and it just off like a teen uh, red dragon like, yeah. it reminded me of thomas harris's early yep. novels and, and it, it was, looks beautiful i mean this yeah. minnesota setting it was just shy i think that's where the fargo stuff yeah. you know that kind of locale was just just beautiful like a really great you, you really felt that sense of, of a kind of isolated ennui and boredom um, and, like, what else are you going to do but turn to daydreams about mass slaughter? It kind <laughs> of made sense in terms of the setting. But, yeah, the final act of this film in particular, it was it's just silly. absolutely painful. Like, mm. and, and it is it is something that I'm noticing a fair bit in indie horror at the moment is this kind of overstuffed ending. It's like you can actually get... It, it, you can make more of an impact by pulling back than, than overstuffing. And I think that that's... Not the responsible of the filmmaker. I think that probably comes from the book, which is why I was curious if you guys have read the book because I think that's very much what the book was about: is this kind of this final twist. Oh, I believe. Um, look, I haven't read the book, but I believe that the book does bleed into other genres, yeah, yeah. which is kind of what you get in the film as well. The other weird, weird 
but interesting thing we might want to talk about is the look of this film. It's shot on 16mm. The aspect ratio is 1.66 to 1, so slightly narrower than we're used to seeing now. We're used to more of a, a 1.78 to 1. And I just found a lot of the iconography and the whole the whole style of film remind me of 90s independent cinema, especially that kind of lo-fi 90s thing. But there is a scene in the film where someone mentions having a smartphone. So it's it's very much contemporary, but designed to evoke the kind of the slacker films of the that 90s. That formal thing's really interesting because it reminded me at times of almost like an after-school special aesthetic. Yeah. You know, like it was that kind of not... I, I, I would not use the word retro because uh, what, do, what do you call it? Retro that? wank. See, it's I, not I, retro wank. Oh, it slipped into that for me. Well, I there is a, a touch of it because there are a couple of times where there are hairs on screen as if oh, they were stuck yeah. in the projector yeah, yeah. gate. And uh, I think, um, well, no, they weren't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mind you. Let me tell you, yeah. they weren't. Uh, yep. No, they weren't. It, it, to me, it just created the effect of, oh, this is the kind of film that gets submitted to festivals that I often watch in my role working for a festival. And I think, good effort, kid. I'd like to see what you can do in 15 years' time. I, I loved the characters. I loved the world of this film. I just didn't really like the story where it went that well, much. Yeah, I think having uh, a sociopathic protagonist with whom you're asked to empathise is an interesting opening gambit and I didn't think that was actually ineffective. It's just the piling on top of this basic premise of some stuff that gets pretty silly. It's, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah that, that final act. Yeah, is it, yeah, the film hasn't... Well, we sometimes talk... Maybe you guys more than I do, but I'm willing to take this on, this turn of phrase, this idea of a film earning as a certain twist or de- a plot development, and it really doesn't. And that it just it, when when it goes there and there's this sort of big reveal, it's just felt I'd wasted. The, I, see, I, I felt that reveal was blatantly signposted incredibly early as well, so yeah. it wasn't that much of a surprise. No. It was this is what you've told us yeah. you've been yeah. building yeah. to for most of the film. Well, I was still hopeful that there'd be something <laughs> other than what did yeah, very explicitly and altogether too uh, on-screenly uh, Two emerged. films that, that came to mind, and not because they quote-unquote reminded me of it in an explicit way, but um, Excision, the Richard Bates film from 2012, and Lucky McGee's May from 2002, both extraordinary films. I've seen May. That's a, May is one, I think well, May is I? one of the best, best <laughs> horror films of the century. I it's think an I've extraordinary seen it. film. It's Angela Bettis. <laughs> It's just, and they really are, you know, they're dealing, they're both dealing with very troubled. Is it the Frankenstein type story? Yeah. yeah very, very troubled young women. Oh. Um, so it's kind of overlapping in, in similar terrain as I'm not a serial killer, formally quite different. I mean, Excision in particular is just an extraordinary, extraordinary visual kind of pre neon demon hmm. look of a film. It's an, it's amazing. But they're both films that really earned their endings. Yeah. Like they really fought, they knew that, they knew that they had to make it count. I, I know that sounds a bit abstract, but they really knew that for it to stick, yep. they had to really f- fight their way through and give the audience. Do, do you think also the Max Records? What was his character's name? What was our Barry Magic? <laughs> Barry Magic. John. I, I made John, that up. You, that was, yeah, yeah, whatever. What? Yeah, so, but John Wayne Cleaver. Yes, Cleaver. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, and John Wayne is it? John Wayne Gacy was the famous serial killer. Yeah, I mean, Cleaver. Yeah, I mean, it's a silly name. It is. But uh, was, was he? Do you think he was? modelled in terms of his look on Harold of Harold and Maud fame. I thought he had I, I, a bit of a Bud Court vibe yeah, going on as well. Bud yeah, that's well, don't know my eight, a name to conjure with. I, I, I don't know my eight times tables, but let me tell you about yeah. Bud Court. <laughs> Anytime. He did have yeah. a real uh, Bud Court-esque he did. Am- yeah. ambience. Yeah. I just thought of every second supporting character in Richard Linklater films yeah. from the 90s. Yeah. I thought he yeah. was great. I thought he was really... I really like... I get a kind of buzz when I see a quote-unquote child actor 
doing good work as mm. an adult because I think that might be a tough life for a young person. And I he, think that he, he really... Yeah. I pack a bong for Max Records. <laughs> <laughs> and Christopher Lloyd's in it too. We liked him. Did, sure. Can we say that? Yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll concur that we did. <laughs> I looked up his filmography. He hasn't stopped working. He's one of these guys who continuously works, but I guess not a lot of it sort of gets picked up on the yeah. overall cultural radar. So Use him as voice talent, surely? Yes, I think he does yeah, quite a bit of voice work. Do. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Life Animated. This is a new documentary by American filmmaker Roger Ross Williams. He has a number of TV short and feature-length film and documentary credits to his name, including the 2010 short documentary Music by Prudence, which won an Academy Award. The subject of Life Animated is 23-year-old Owen Suskind, who at the age of three developed autism and withdrew from the world. Over the years, Suskind's parents and brother discover that his love of animated Disney films allowed him to make sense of the world, and these films became an essential communication and learning tool for him. Life Animated cross-cuts between telling Owen's story as a young boy and his story more recently now, where uh, for the first time he's preparing to live by himself. Now, I know, Cerise, you touched on this briefly when it was screened at the Melbourne International Film Festival and you were incredibly moved by it. I was. I can see why. Yeah. This was one of our mermaid films, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, when we went off on that mermaid bender. That, um, I remember it? listening to that. Mm. Yeah, it did get weird. <laughs> <laughs> it, was it was wonderfully weird. Uh, evolution. <laughs> Yeah. And um, the lure. And Little from the Fish Shop. That's right. We had yes. four mermaid-related right. films. But the, 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 nice the Little one, Mermaid is one of the, mm. the yeah. key films for yes. Owen. Yes. I, yeah, I really adored this. this. This moved me every which way. had me in gales of laughter. It had me also just sobbing like... Um, oh, what's, what's the measure of sobbiness? Some extremely <laughs> torrentially teary... Uh, but a somehow overjoyed spectator of... of um, now look, honestly, I, no Disney movie has had this effect on me that comes to mind. Uh, there's something really wonderfully perverse about uh, Disney being the gateway to making sense of the world when Disney is, as we know, um, made a lot of their uh, fortune by putting out into the world highly sanitised versions of what were once often very macabre uh, fairy tales from Central Europe. That's, that's been their stock and trade, really. Um, and yet they've done a tremendous service to at least one young man here who has found a, a way after many years of, of more or less silence, of, of communicating firstly with his family and then the world beyond that by degrees, um, I have to give Disney credit for allowing their footage to be used in this film because they're famously... I was wondering about that. Yeah, they're famously very anti any use of uh, their their material, not least... I mean, if you consider that copyright laws are largely beholden to the Disney Corporation, that, um, that Mickey Mouse has been the character that has led to um, extensions of copyright uh, law um, longevity... A few times, I think not just once, but uh, twice, three times, uh, four times a mermaid. Actually, I'm I'm trying to remember my broadcaster training here at Triple R because this does come up. Yeah, it does. It's often referred to as the Mickey Mouse clause or the the Mickey Mouse law. It is the case study. Um, Yeah. 
where mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time, after the death of a creator, certain yes, properties became years now. public domain and it, got, and it got changed to protect Mickey Mouse. That's, That's right. how powerful Disney is. Lest anybody yeah. have any mischief with yeah. that particular iconic uh, character. Yeah, but the, but the point is, um, it's it's remarkable how... I thought of that too when watching yeah. this film. It's remarkable how much Disney obviously were on side with this documentary. It's, it's a good fit for their brand. Like, it, it is. Not wanting to sound cynical about it, but it's... Um, but it does at the same time raise the, the spectrum of a certain thing that that haunts Disney's animation through its absence, and that's adult sexuality or any sense of the the world beyond um, childhood. You could say uh, lots of these fairy tales deal with well, uh, they're, they're quite adult concerns in a way, but it's so sanitised by the time Disney have got their hands on them. But here, the whole business of Owen coming of age and uh, needing some guidance, some sex education. And obviously, he's not going to find it in Disney. And this is addressed extremely hilariously in the film. I I, I, I was really just falling about the place when his brother is contemplating how on earth he's going to explain the mechanics of sex to his younger brother. Uh, when really all he has as a framework for understanding the world is Disney animation. That's just not broached in that entire oeuvre. There is a point in the film where one of the counsellors or one of the... Know, the, the psychiatrists who work with him. Somebody does raise the, the issue of now that he isn't is an adult, that the f- filtering ex- his experience through, through Disney is becoming a problem. Because um, in, in the first place, you know, the exaggerated emotions and expressions in these film, yeah, help him to condense the over the over stimuli yeah. that he gets hit from the world. So it really is a perfect way for him to simplify all these very complex thoughts that, you know, the autistic mind uh, can be very traumatised by. And that's, I mean, I think that the best part of this film was the first half hour where he saw the stuff with him as a child. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, that home movie footage really, really reduced me to tears. But um, I wish they'd explored more this concept that it only can go so far and now they're, 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 they're kind of in trouble because he's still filtering the world through Disney and it's very limited. And all that stuff about the brother trying to talk to him about his sexuality and where that, where's that going to go and documenting his relationship with his girlfriend. I didn't like that. I felt really uncomfortable having that in the film. I, I All that stuff, I, I felt I shouldn't be watching this. I thought that was bordering on invasion of his privacy. I, I could see how it's an issue worth raising, but um, that section of the film left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Mm. Alex. Um, I can't... What's his name? Gilbert... Gottfried? Yes. I can't... I'm, I'm physically incapable of saying anything negative about anything that that man is in. I just think he is a god, frankly. You're a I'm Gilbert Gottfried s- fan. I'm so into him. I was secretly hoping watching this that he... He does a cameo. <laughs> yeah. I was just waiting for him to break into the aristocrats mode. It's like, please, I was about to say, have please, you seen his aristocrats routine? His, yeah, oh, it's yeah. amazing. Oh, yeah. he's 9-11. He's famous yeah. 9-11 stuff. It's like, which Gilbert Gottfried are we going to get here? Because yeah. there's a little oh, bit of danger knew. in that you unstable knew. voice. No, <laughs> he, he's stuck with the... Is it Iago? He's the bird from Aladdin? Is that the... Yes. Yes. It's been a while since I've seen it. But, yeah, no, yeah. That, that... I mean, look... Just go and see it for him. He's only in it for, what, five minutes? If that, it's it's all made really like, film of the year, yeah. Gilbert Gottfried's yeah. in it, done, I'm out. Look, I think, um, <laughs> seriously though, I think that this is a really fascinating film from a kind of critical perspective because we talk a lot about film as a language. We talk about film language and cinema language and this film really takes that idea and I, I find this a really fascinating concept for a documentary to talk about, okay, so how does film work as a language? Um, and let's let's rethink 
that concept in a really, really different way. Um, that is, I mean, look, this is, it's a fairy tale. I mean, it's a, it, the film itself, I think, is a fairy tale. It takes this extraordinary young man and his extraordinary family and shows this just remarkable story about how film changed their life, really kind of gave them an opening into this young man's personality and, and his way of seeing the world that they wouldn't otherwise perhaps have had. So it's pretty hard to fault that. Um, but at the same time, I mean, these are these are very wealthy people. It's mm. like, well, we will send him to the to the best school we can. He was also diagnosed very, very young, and I think that um, that's unusual for people of his age. And I think they touch on that very slightly. That um, is it in the nineties or the period where he was diagnosed. Yeah, very early. 90s. Research was not as advanced on autism as it is now. So yeah. I mean, a lot of people, regardless of their income, fall through the cracks. Mm. And this kid also comes from. This young man, sorry, as he is now. I mean, he comes from a family. I mean, his father's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Um, and that's, you know, that's, I mean, this is a, there was an extraordinary amount, uh, an extraordinary framework in place to help this young man get to where he needed to be um, and to put him on his journey. And it, it is a fairy tale. And I think it's a very hopeful story. Um, you know, it gives hope to people that perhaps don't have those kind of privileges and those kind of narratives. But I like the simplicity of it, that film is a language and it can teach us a new way to talk. Well, we all um, have any number of times in our life to this point, I would think, uh, been in social situations where ourselves or others amongst us find themselves somehow compelled to rehearse a scene from a movie or a sketch no, how many Python tragedies? I can have only communicate through Simpsons references. Yeah, you guys know that. It's the like, only. Yeah, yeah. I I have no other frame of reference. Yeah, this, really? this is really just ex- one of them. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's just an extreme um, uh, take on how I know a lot of people to function socially as, as it is, and these mm. people are notionally uh, <laughs> um, normal, normative type folk, yep. well yep. adjusted into society's mainstream mm-hmm. or not far. A field of it so but I, I still found this film throughout extremely touching oh it is it, and, it's a disney um, like it's a, it's, a, it's a fairy tale it's but, a heartfelt yeah, but beautiful disney's films don't move me in the slightest normally they mm. just frustrate me and and they they there's the saccharine uh tendencies in them come just, on frozen 2 are you waiting for the you don't have your heart in the frozen 2 they're gonna yeah, clear I, it up i i like a lot of disney films yeah not so much I think they get me. a bad rap I, I, yeah, they do. Well, do they? I mean, they have a look at the box office. Well, they yeah, I, mean, I think yeah. they're doing all right. No, I, I think there's a tendency to always dismiss Disney films as sanitising fairy tales, where in fact they were applying uh, the ideology of the time, or Walt Disney certainly anyway, onto these stories which have gone through so many permutations. I mean, the Brothers Grimm didn't write those stories. No. They were just the first ones to put them down on paper in a significant way. Well, not necessarily even the first. There are all these folklorists and all of those uh, European yeah. They have, lands. and it's not even European. European, it's cross yeah, cultural. Where they all have yeah, folklorists have like codes yeah. and stuff. Korean, like there's I Korean saw a Cinderellas. Film the other day, which starts off as the Cinderella story. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing stuff. Folklore is like I, I, I got lost in it when they particular story strands are referred to by a code. Mm. It's just extraordinary. It's such an amazing thing. And yeah, you're right. I mean, Disney kind of picked that up, and they kind of feed into this long, mm. long, long discourse. You know, this kind of long tradition of storytelling. Yeah. And I think um, this film demonstrates that, you know, 
the, the kind of simplified version of life that Disney gives obviously really connects with, with certain types of minds. I mean, obviously, younger minds, and in this case, you know, a mind that does need to have the external world filtered. Yes. So, I mean, it definitely made me respect Disney films in a different way. I, I think about it more, though, that that kind of interrogation of of what it is to filter someone's life through a Disney film never really got challenged beyond a very brief mention in the film. The Disney thing is interesting. I mean, just kind of joking about my addiction to talking about The Simpsons, but, you know, would we see this documentary about a child who learned to communicate through South Park? Do you know what? I, that would be a very different documentary. That'd be a terrifying child. <laughs> be a very sweary child. Yeah. It would be, but you know what I mean. Like the, the choice of the particular kind of yeah. mode of media here, I think, fitted the broader narrative of the film. You know, this. But again, of, there's something safe about Disney films. Yeah, and no, I think exactly, that's, and that's that. That's, that's worth appreciating. That, yeah. that is also yeah. Disney films of a certain era, though, and I guess that's the yes. VHS era, uh, and and less about the let's say the, a classic era. I, I think he, he did ex- have some exposure to Dumbo. Dumbo and Bambi. Yeah. And, and and, uh, yeah, Bambi. I grew up with Bambi. That's still sort of of my I era can't too, talk about Bambi early, and Dumbo. I'll yeah. lose it. Yeah, see, these can't. are... I do admire mm. those, those yeah, films. It's, something, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Alice... Well, Fantasia's what it's all about. That's really. right. That's, that's, a bit that's abstract. an alright film. Try to filter your way. <laughs> I love the Disney Alice in yeah. Wonderland. That's, yeah, me too. that's wonderful. Me yeah. too. Mm. How about the animation in this film is quite something as well, and it's not it's especially be- Disney. It's a beautifully made documentary, and mm. I love this idea that it starts off with these loose, are they charcoal sketches or very loose, sort yeah. of black and white, and the yeah. idea of the colour filling. Yes. You know that this this idea that that his story is becoming animated, his life is becoming animated through this film language. Um, I think it's a very poetic. Yeah, well, this Formally reinforces very beautiful. What you were suggesting that yes, this film is a fairy tale, and yeah. it is a. And I don't think it's not quite a Disney fairy tale, no. but it's Disney influence. I don't say that as a criticism. I think that this would be a really hard film to criticize from that perspective. I think that anything that goes out of its way to kind of, you know, frame this young young man's story as a story of hope is to be admired. Um, so I certainly don't say that as a. As oh, a look, negative. I, I agree. I did mention the, the slight yeah. pupils I had. I was a bit uncomfortable with some of what they showed, and I think the, the first half hour is by far the strongest, the strongest part of the film. But look, overall, this is a, a, a tremendous, tremendous moving film. But I think actually, if nothing else, it also gives you a bit of a bit more of an understanding into what it is to be autistic or to live with an autistic person, because it's still highly misunderstood. I took a lot out of out of it on that, especially angle. that yeah. message that autistic people aren't. Anti-social. They want friends. They want to connect, but they they struggle to pick up on the social cues to do that. So you know, it's a very very lonely condition to have. These are people who want friends but struggle to have them. And I, I was really glad I could take that away from the film. I think it's an important thing to know. Yeah, but for everyone out there, there is community. Three triple R. Thanks to Cinema Nova's upcoming retrospective of the films by Stanley Kubrick, where all his features will be screened. Uh, It starts this Thursday. We are continuing to look at some of the films that don't get talked about as much as some of the others. So tonight we're discussing his 1975 period drama, Barry Lyndon, which despite being a highly acclaimed and awarded film, it does tend to be overshadowed by things like Clockwork Orange, which came before it, and The Shining, which came after. Barry Lyndon is an adaptation of the 1844 novel The Luck of Barry Lyndon by William Macpiece Thackeray. And it's a rise and fall story that depicts the exploits of Redmond Barry, a young Irish man in the 18th century who, after suffering a broken heart and having to flee home, ends up fighting in the Seven Years' War before becoming a professional gambler, marrying into money in society and then becoming thoroughly unpleasant. 
It features a large supporting cast of notable character actors with Ryan O'Neill in the lead role as Redmond Barry. O'Neill was at the height of his success and popularity, having recently starred in films such as Love Story, What's Up Doc and Paper Moon. And another person of note is cinematographer John Alcott, who won an Oscar for the pioneering work done on Barry Lyndon between him and Kubrick, which enabled a lot of the film to be shot by candlelight instead of electrical light, uh, giving many of the interior scenes a very distinctive look designed to evoke 18th century paintings. There's a few facts I've thrown at you. Would you like to add anything more, or should we just talk about... Barry Lyndon. I'm going to nerd this up. Nerd it up, Alex. Red, Redmond Barry. Shout out to, to our peeps at the State Library of Victoria in the Redmond Barry reading room. There's a, uh-huh. a different Redmond Barry? No, it's the same one in my mind. Every time I go <laughs> to the State Library, it's like coobs. Like there's, the, bu- there's a building at Melbourne Uni named well, after think, him too. Yeah, the first he was the first Chancellor of the University of yep. Melbourne. I think he was also a judge. But I, in my heart... It's Ryan O'Neill. I don't want to dismiss our more local Redmond Barry, but in my heart, it's like State Library of Victoria. <laughs> there's like the there's the uh, Redmond Barry reading room. There is also the Jack Torrance reading room, I believe, if you go down into the basement. This don't is... go down into the basement. <laughs> just, just this don't, is don't the life I live. Be careful of the HAL 9000 computer system because it, it, it can turn on you. <laughs> I love that Redmond Barry. I have a little giggle each time, a little, a little Melbourne nerd giggle. Not yeah, me so much. Uh, yeah, well, that's a tricky one to pick up from <laughs> and run with. I'll come back to those candlelights. I believe some yeah. of those shots were, I mean, as the Kubrick way was to take, take, takes, after takes, after takes, until he was satisfied. Uh, it must have been very painful lighting those candles time and again. Just this was to get one the of the famous ones, effect. I think, that he did up to like 150 takes on some of these scenes. Yeah, this Ryan was like the real reported being on set for a year. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And Marissa Berenson, I think, was like in an Irish castle just waiting for, for like months to be brought down to be filmed. Yep. It's a quite a classic, um, quite an amazing production history. This film is actually castle porn. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> so over the time. It's just and wig, wigs too. Wigs, if you're uh, into wigs, this is the film for you. I, coats and such. Until re-watching it recently, actually two things s- stuck out that I hadn't really picked up on before. Last week we talked about Paths of Glory being one of four war films, but I think Barry Lyndon is kind of a war film as well. I mean, a good chunk of the first half involves warfare and, again, the absurdity of r- war and being in the military. And the other thing, I don't, I, I don't know how I failed to miss this before, but how incredibly funny this film is, especially the first half, with a lot of these magnificent character actors really... I don't want to say hamming up the parts, but they're, they're, they're playing it big. And Kubrick apparently often directs his actors to play it big. I mean, you see that in Malcolm McDowell and The Clockwork Orange and Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And um, and there's a, a, a lot of scenes in this film without dialogue, and it's just through the way the actors are looking at each other. And I wasn't aware of how much silence there is in this film, but you're just thoroughly engrossed with these incredible reaction shots. Well, Marissa Berenson, who plays uh, Lady uh, Lady Linden. Oh, um, still my beating heart. I just, I'm so yeah. besotted. I mean, she's an amazing, amazing woman. She was like this sort of style icon of the 60s and 70s. Her grandmother is uh, Alyssa Schiaparelli, the fashion designer. They make lovely tights, really nice tights. Um, I mean, she's just amazing. She was in Cabaret. She was Natasha, Natalie in Cabaret. Anyway, she's just amazing. But she says so little in this film. I'm always, like, when I think of this film, I almost think of her more than I think of the title character. Just, you know, her amazing hair and boobs and things going on. And just this intensity about her. And she just says so little. It's just such an amazing character. That scene in the bath, yeah. She's just incredible, <laughs> the presence that she has in this yeah, film. Yeah, I mean, and 
Chubik is so good. I mean, people often, again, look over how good he was with actors. They mm. assume he's this cold director, but he gets in- incredible performances This is, I think, actors. one of his most actorly films, if that's even a word. Yep. You know, like, there's such energy going on. And as spe- with the young, um, the younger and older uh, Lyndon's son, so Lord Lyndon as a young boy and as an older man, um, the performances that he gets out of those two actors is just incredible. Leon Fatale is a really um, amazing performer. He plays the older version of the son he um he's the guy he ended up being like a, an assistant director or just an assistant for, to kubrick for years and years and i think he still looks after his archival stuff and um remastering stuff you know they were very very close but he's the guy in eyes wide shut who uh, in the red cloak and the gold mask who points out mm. tom cruise oh nice like How's, there you go. I'm done with my Kubrick. That's good. I, Kubrick I, I want to give a shout out to um, Leonard Rossiter who plays. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. who, who's the character who plays Sir? He's John Captain, Captain John yeah. Quinn. Oh, he's now. good. Magnificent English character actor, yeah. and he just does the, some of the best mugging for camera. Oh, he really does. I mean, he was a dab hand at that on TV for years in the rise and fall or fall and rise of uh, Reginald Perrin. Uh, yep. Way back when, and in Rising Damp, um, he had a little part in Kubrick's 2001 as well. But yeah, it's, it, oh, I did too. He, he was, he was yeah. the Russian ambassador who tries to get information out of um, Thingo, Thingo guy yeah, in sh- the space place with the rotating watsits. And Only my favourite <laughs> film of all time. My favourite, yeah, my favourite tagline. Huge or whatever <laughs> yes. the century thingies are. Um, yeah, Philip Stone, um, who played Graham, he was the assistant to Lady Lyndon, who was, of course. What is his name in The Shining? The the guy, the guy in the oh the the, the, the I'm completely blank in, on in his Barry name. Lyndon, he's the character who does all the the bookkeeping. Yes, and, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I know um, exactly who you mean. I know who you mean. This is brilliant radio. Yeah, that guy. That, that, the guy with the thing in the movie with the thing. You know, there's people who are listening who know exactly who yeah, we're talking it's about. And it's driving them crazy. I'm going to get tweets tomorrow. We apologise. Use use Google, but it, it, it's <laughs> it's a it's a great all star cast of really interesting character actors, many of whom appear in other Kubrick films. Patrick McGee giving good patch and fop. Lots of people giving good fops. Even Burkhoff giving extremely good fop. Uh, Have you been practising that? That's very good. <laughs> good fop and good patch. You yeah. talk about eye patch, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, the dandies. So many um, court... Da- Actually, what I'm, I'm curious about the, the, the fact that this is an adaptation of Thackeray. When Thackeray wrote it, it was already... Uh, a period piece. He wrote it, what was it, 1844 it was published, but this is set yes. in the 18th century, some years prior. I don't know how weird and absurd the events depicted in the book were at the time it was published, but looking back now in the 21st century, war is still hell and still stupid and people are still cannon fodder for the ruling elite and will we ever learn? At least they dressed Natalie back then, <laughs> no, when they were sent off to be shot down by... Um, people whom if they actually got any closer would have just stabbed them with bayonets anyway it's um it's casually brutal and yet beautiful all of those scenes of war everything is so painterly is there any scene in this film that isn't autumnal everything just Just gorgeous yeah it is exquisite that last i mean this is a long film i always remember it being long and in the first act i'm like this is just going forever and then that last the second act just barrels along like it just all of that energy that you get from that kind of build up from that first act it just it just it's just on fire in that second act and this just has my favorite epilogue and i think it's directly from the novel which is i've written it down because it's so perfect it was in the reign of george the third that the aforesaid personas lived and quarreled good or bad handsome or ugly rich or poor they are all equal now i 
like belly laugh every time I see that. I just think it's. I want all films to have that epilogue. Like it's historical. Get over it. It's, They're all dead. It's a bit <laughs> of a Scorsese-esque ending, actually, it's because so good. Th- there's no grand, you know, demise or fallout. He just kind of fades away into obscurity. It's it's sort of a, a prolonged kind of slightly depressing ending. I think it's quite different from the from the novel. I think the epilogue's yep. the same, but I think the novel actually ends quite differently f- from the film. That's one of the areas that, that Kubrick took quite um, quite major liberties with. I am... Um, I'm going to... You know, Kubrick made 13 films. I consider five to be masterpieces. There, there are not many films I would give the masterpiece status to. And then there are four which I think are excellent films that I wouldn't quite call a masterpiece. And I do put Barry Lyndon into that category. I, it's interesting you say that the energy from the first half then barrels along with the second. I actually find the second half, every time I watch this film, I do feel a slump. And my, my oh, one complaint... That's interesting. I'm the opposite. See, I, I think for me, Barry Lyndon has the same problem as full metal jacket which is the first half is so incredibly good the second half can't possibly live up to that i mean i think these are still films better than 99 percent of any any of the other films made in the universe ever but um yeah i i for me this is just a very slight notch below the masterpieces should we talk about Ryan O'Neill at all? We should, shouldn't we? Do we, do we have to? <laughs> well, a little. There's something, He's very good. He is. It could easily be Channing Tatum. There's quite a resemblance. Or Brad Pitt. Something, if you <gasps> merge Tatum's the two a good into call. one. Don't yeah, say that. You'll, you'll trigger some kind of bad remake mojo in the universe. His star persona was... It was curious, wasn't it? Is it is curious. I mean, in this film, especially early on, he's quite wet. Yeah. He's really a bit gormless, and uh, while everyone else is hamming it up big time, he's just sort of floppy and a bit pathetic. But uh, it, it, we know that this is meant to be a, a rise and fall sort of a story, but we, you can't help but wonder at the beginning, how on earth is he going to rise other than with just sheer good luck? Because he he's really seems to have precious little agency until he gets his pecker up, so to speak, after when he's um, <laughs> jilted. Um, you know, finally, we well, he's just a mopey, depressed teenager, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, yeah he loves is. sick little boy, and yeah, some things perhaps are eternal. That's how it was in the 18th century, just as it is now, I suppose. That's why the first half is so fun. It's sort of a mixture of his or- his audacity, more through stupidity, mm. um, and and just weird dumb luck, sort of barrels him through this adventure. Yeah, there's something of the good soldier Schweik written sometime later too, where there's this character who just swaps military allegiance, uh, just sort of falls from one camp into another just with the oh what's the the, the vicissitudes of uh, war and such oh, it's all good fun you sense there's a bit of a uh, a snook being cocked at the lunacy of european imperialism why am i giggling because i am five before i got to <laughs> let you go thomas um yep. delbert grady from the shining philip stone if i didn't mention that i was not going to sleep tonight who appears in the bathroom to um yeah yep. as a ghost he's the, yep. the previous caretaker that's right. Yes. And the bartender very, very in The Shining was in Paths of Glory, yes. as we touched on last yep. week. Oh, I love Stanley Kubrick so much. You've been listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas Caldwell, Alexander Heller, Nicholas and Cerise Howard. I Am Not a Serial Killer is on limited release through Monster Pictures. Life Animated is on limited release through Madman Entertainment. And Barry Lyndon will screen as part of the Stanley Kubrick Film Festival at Cinema Nova from 6 to 19 October. Please do keep listening to Triple R. Cock your muskets for local and or general with Jason Moore. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.